When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Okay, okay, okay. I respect you even more. Yes, the secret is sneaked out. I love the Mighty Dandies. I'm an Aberdeen fan. But because you're generous, loving, kind, good-humoured people, almost none of you pulled me up for not having had the time at the end of the Graham Soonis interview to go into great depth about Rangers. But I want to draw a line here and make it absolutely clear. It's because Graham was playing golf. It was nothing to do with an Aberdeen fan not wanting to talk about Rangers. And this is going to be the proof. Terry Butcher, when he arrived up at Ibrox in 1986, felt to us at Aberdeen, we fans at least, what the Romans must have felt like when they first saw the Visigoths hoving over the horizon saying, ah, Rome, yes, we fancy that. His arrival, Chris Wood's arrival, Colin West's arrival, meant that life in Scotland was changing forever. With the benefit of time, some of the pain has healed. and I was willing to ask Terry about what it felt like to come to Scotland and to dominate, but to come to Scotland and to play on a surface that he wasn't used to, to play in England-Scotland matches in training at Rangers when the manager turned out for England. Davy Cooper features here at length. There's a bit of Gaza, too. There's more England. And in fact, we talk about the... Well, Terry and I will always have Casablanca. We talk about the pre-1998 training camp um, that England had in La Manga and Casablanca and what it is that England as an international team are lacking. The single thing that might drive them, potentially in our lifetime, to win another major trophy. Certainly that would be Terry's wish, and I'm interested in his diagnosis of why that hasn't happened so far. Just like in episode one, there are laughs because Terry, I suppose in the same vein as Graeme Souness and Charlie Nick, but certainly Chris Wardle, someone with whom he's very, very close, is a brilliant football raconteur. Get the dog ready, get the gym membership out, just get everybody out of the room, sit back and lap this up. And what I really want to bring out one of the things you touched on because we all we all knew because we paid a lot of attention. Neil, Neil kind of supported Ipswich, and um, I, I really admired the brand of football. It so happened that Ipswich was a big night for me because at Petodri, when you were holders of the Cup, Cup that, that was an extraordinary night for Aberdeen, not dissimilar from Ipswich in terms of size and population and you know, pushing against the rest of the big clubs and therefore to meet the holders and to win that night was a really big impact on me. But, you know, I knew um, long before you, you started for England or when you came to Rangers that, that you were a good footballing centre-back, particularly in your passing. When you were out playing 
really good sides. Two ties really stick in my mind. You, you lost narrowly very early in your career to Barcelona, beating two one at, at Portman Road, and then lost one nil. Yeah. I can't now. I, I think in the quarterfinals of the Cup Winners Cup after having won yeah. at Wembley against Arsenal. And also, you've mentioned 1982 World Cup a couple of times, Patrick Battiston, yeah. who was so cruelly hatcheted by my most hated footballer ever, Tony Schumacher, in that semi-final Germany-France. He must have been sick of the sight of you, because in the Cup Winners' Cup that you win, you yeah. guys defeat a, an outstanding Sinetian side. Oh, yeah. With Patini and Rep. UEFA Cup. Yeah, UEFA Cup. Pardon me, yeah. UEFA Cup, pardon yeah. me, that, in that yeah. instance. And then England, you have France beaten with Battiston on the side at up in San Mamas, I think, in the first game of the World Cup in 82. Bilbao, yeah. Bilbao winning, you know, you'd scored after 50. We won 3-1 that game, yeah. It was my fault that Soler scored the equaliser. No, I'm not so listening to that. This, this, is, this is not the type of interview for that. But tell me about those, those times and outplaying great sides for England well, and Ipswich. On the UEFA Cup run, it was, it's amazing how it picked up really well. Salonica was the first game. Yeah. Aris Salonica at home, we won 5-1. And you think the game's over. And we're 3-0 down with about 10 minutes to go. It's been two of the goals were never over the line. It was about a foot short of the line, but the, 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 the referee gave it as a two goals. So we were there 3-0. And we're thinking, 10 minutes to go, if they score again, we're out mm. on away goals. Mm. And luckily Eric Gates scores to make it 3-1, and then they scored to make it 4 Was that a hostile night? Oh, it was unbelievable. We got, well, the coach got battered by stones and bricks and everything else like that. Yeah, it was, re it was really nasty. Does that account for the officials saying, yeah, yeah, it's over the line, or was it just a... No, I think there was a, a hint of uh, provocation uh, fear. before the game of fear, yeah. yeah. So it was extraordinary how the goals were given, but there we are. It's another story where, oh, I suppose in my career, I'm pretty used to dubious goals being scored against us, but <laughs> never mind, I shan't go into that one. But no, we, we, were, we were on a good roll that year. That was a fantastic year for us. I think 66 games that year. Yeah. I played in 64, Russell played in, in all of them. So mm -hmm. the most incredible season ever. We played against uh, Sanetien, we went out there yeah, in the quarterfinals. Were you aware of what was facing you, what kind of side this was? No, not really. Because no. it's an era without Sky Television, without no, yeah. video, you don't see the teams a lot, no. but some of the names must already have meant a lot to you. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously. Rep and Platini in particular. Yeah, Platini, Batistón, Larios. Yes. Uh, uh, Didier C, was a Cease playing as well? Jean-Bion was definitely playing. Jean Rep, Rep was Rep, yeah. um, who yeah. in 74 was... You know, at least as attractive as Neskins had been. Oh, I yeah. Think. Maybe just behind Croy. A phenomenal side. And, yeah. and we knew about the hostile atmosphere. They hadn't lost there for years, apparently. So we knew about it. But we, we got there early to the ground. There's a nice, cute little ground. So Nettie yeah. is not the, in the most luxurious place in France, yeah. with all due respect, right in the middle, but the industrial town. But we got there early. And we got there with about an hour and a half to two hours before the game. Uh, and the, it was nearly full. It was, there was what a noise they were making. And then we got on the pitch and... They were throwing oranges and apples and all that onto the pitch for us, not because we were hungry, but they wanted to hit us. So the boys started knocking the balls and, out, and apples and oranges around and flipping them on the back of the head and all that sort of thing. And it made us more relaxed. And we just went out. There's a pudding of a pitch as well. The pitch was really, really bad, really sticky, really, really, you know, gave way a lot and yeah. divots everywhere. And, and we played some lovely football. We went 1-0 down after about six minutes, five, six minutes. We went 1-0 down. And then we just took command of the game. Mariner scored, Murin scored, Walk scored, I think Brazil scored. So it was, just, it was just an incredible night. I was left back that night. Even I had a shot as well on goal, which was quite rare. So it must have been how well we played. Uh, Kevin Beattie was sent half as well. So we had a you know, formidable side uh, ourselves, but not as good as the, as the French one. And, and, and it was when we came back for the return leg. No, after the game. See, before the game, because we went out early, Russell and I said, right, some nice wine. Went down to the local supermarket. And we bought a couple of bottles of, uh, of, of red wine. 
for the journey back. So we, we chartered the plane. So we win the game 4-1, everyone's on the high. So we get on the plane and in the bags, because no one really checks the bags and that's so in the bags with the, with the wine. And we've got some cigars as well. So we, I've got a bottle of wine, in each, red wine in each pocket and my, and my jacket, the club jacket. And I'm walking down the aisle to the, cab, to the cabin, to the flight deck, knock on the door, pilot sort of thing. He says, uh, how are you doing, Mr. Butcher? Great win tonight. I says, yeah, fantastic, lads. I says, uh, we're celebrating back here. Would you like a nice glass of red or a bottle? <laughs> and they, went, they said, no, I don't think we'll actually have that tonight. Thank you very much. I said, well, do you want a cigar as well? And they said, no, we're actually fine. Thanks very much. <laughs> so then we get back to him. So it's back, I think it was South End or somewhere. And we, we got all the miniatures and we ended up with a great journey back to back to Ipswich, um, about an hour's journey back just to finish it off well. And then the return leg, they're, they're all saying it's over and all that sort of thing. I scored in the return leg, we won 3-1 at Portman Road. And to beat a team like that, you know, 7-2 on aggregate was just unbelievable. I think that really gave us belief then that we could actually go all the way. And to outplay them too. Yeah, we played that, some really lovely stuff, yeah. I think in, in, in European football, you, you can beat better sides, but to, to outplay a side like that, to me, was extraordinary. Yeah, well, I, I played that game virtually as a left winger, because I just, it was the way that we played. The full-backs had to get forward, and I was left-back. And I'm probably the biggest left-back in the history of left-backs, apart from Dougie Rugby at Aberdeen. But, you know, and I just kept putting crosses in the box, and Walkie would score, or um, Brazil would get on the end of them, or Mariner was there. But that's was, the thing, you touched on this, you had a, you had a very good left foot. I, well, I could swing it, yeah, I could get across in the box. But no, but you could also, what I liked as well was that you could, you could from centre-half, you could pass. Yeah, you know, I had left, a good range left. of pass, yeah. yeah. I was always told, Bobby Ferguson always told me that the, the switch of play from left to right, yeah. 60, 70 yard raking diagonals across the other side, was, that was a killer ball, that was great. I'm not sure if you get the chance to watch it, but the guy who reminds me of you is Piquet. Yeah. Because Piquet's, if you go back and watch the tapes of the 2010 World Cup and they win, PK's change of play, where instead of, just like you said about Wilkins, um, because both Xavi and Iniesta, who were the stars of that 2010 World Cup winning team, could drop back in. They can both pass a little bit. <laughs> but PK would very often go left to right, or indeed right to left, and pick out Villa. And that, that movement of, if they've, if they've been predominantly the offence, the, the, the team that you're playing against are predominantly on one side of the pitch, that raking ball, particularly to a player who can then cut in into open space rather than go down the, the wing, it changes marking schemes completely. Mm-hmm. And I remember right from the start that you, you could do that, but I don't remember left winger play. I never, well, I remember well, s- well, it was the way the team played and the possession that we had. Arnold Muren used to come inside and that gave me space to move on the outside. Your width always comes, if you're playing a diamond system, the width always comes from your fullbacks. So it was, it was good space for me to drive into. And that, would you call that wing-back well, in the modern? Yeah, yeah in a way, because Walkie would, you've got insurance because you've got the, a, a defensive midfield player plus the opposite fullback. You could so, drop in. Yeah, so you've, you've got safety at the back so you could go. And if you went, other people covered him for you. Arnold would cover for me at left back and things like this. So, plus I had Kevin Beatty there. I want to ask it was, you about He was a phenomenal, phenomenal, my favourite player ever. He was unbelievable. Unbelievable. He was the, we call him the monster. He was, unbe- he was like Popeye. This is, not, this, is, this is traditionally not a visual medium. Terry's been very animated during the conversation and enjoyed it. And if it's not impertinent, even saying Kevin Beatty brought a huge smile to yeah. his mouth and to his eyes yeah. um, in affection. When we were travelling in the train to come meet you, I was saying that as I was growing up, I didn't, I maybe still don't have an educated eye, but I didn't have an educated enough eye to, to understand what, I always heard people saying about two players in particular, who I think have been underappreciated laterally. Colin Bell was one, yeah. but BT was the other. And I, was, I always remember hearing people or reading 
people saying about BT in those days that he was extraordinary. And Neil remembers reading in Bobby's book that I think Bobby used the phrase that BT was the, the best England player he'd ever seen. Yeah. Now yeah. you get used to people saying Moore or Charlton or Edwards. Well, I think Bobby, for me, for me, Bobby Moore was the best England player I've ever seen because he's a captain of the country, lifted the World Cup. You'll never ever take that away. From okay, him. but then you're also talking about the iconography and the moment and the lifting but, but, of the cup. But Kevin didn't play many times for England because, because of injuries, and in a for way, the, the injuries him. helped my career because Kevin had to retire. Tell us about that, him. I, I was able to get there. Explain but, what was special. He was a the lovable guy. He's a bit like he was a bit like Gaza, daft as a brush. He's a, you know, and he's he's a little bit. It beats the life and soul of the party. I mean, we, we went to, when I was in the youth team in Ipswich in 80s, in, not 87, in 77, um, we went to Lorette de Mar on a, a, for a tournament, played against Barcelona, lost in the final to Barcelona. And Kevin was injured, but he came along as a sort of chaperone for the boys, which is probably the worst chaperone <laughs> Bobby could ever imagine. But he's coming up, and we used to go out for nights out. But he was, on a, he was in the next room to us, me and Russ were in the room, in the hotel, and he was in the next room to us on his own. And he hated being on his own. He's quite insecure, beat. He liked company. Um, he liked being with the boys and that sort of thing. So he used to come and stay in our room, and then all we go back to his room and things like this. But we'd always, the three of us would stay in the room together. But one day, he decided to go back to his room. He's drinking in our room. We'd had a good few drinks. And he decided to go back to his room, but he didn't go through the door, which any normal person would do. He decided to go from window to window. And we're about three floors up. So we're about 50, 60 feet above the ground, yeah. and Beat decides, Kevin Beat decides, I'm going to go jump on that window ledge there, which was only about six inches wide to, to jump. And we, we, we couldn't stop him, we could not stop him at all because he's a strong guy, he'd, he'd pin us against the wall. And he, he did it, he jumped. And we were the most relieved people so in the world. He jumped from it window wasn't to window. Stretching a leg. No. It, it was a jump. It was a jump. Whoa. But Beat's jump. Jumping prowess was phenomenal. He, he, was, he was easily the best of the club. You know, that standing, you have a yeah, standing start. Yeah. You, you stand against the wall, put your arm yeah. up as far as you can, they mark it, and then from a standing start, you jump up and they mark it where you touch. His was by far the best leap. He had a natural spring and explosion. To, and he, some, of the, some of the headers, he used to, the towering headers, he used to get up, his timing was phenomenal. But there's one story I tell about Beat. It was a competition to, to find out the, the fastest footballer. And it was, it was run somewhere where it was run, Newcastle, somewhere else like that. And all the clubs had to put forward a, a, their, their quickest runner. So Beat was easily our, our, our fastest guy. So we went up there to, to go in there. And all the boys had a bet on Beat to win it because they, they all knew how quick he was because he, he didn't want to get beat in the sprints because he would murder you. So we all thought he's gonna, it's a certainty to win this. So then the news came back that he was third. We were like, wow, there must be someone really quick people. But the people that won it, we're like, well, Kevin's far quicker than them. What happened in the race was, was Beat got his kit and took his kit up there and got onto the track and that sort of thing. As he's running, he hadn't, on his, underneath his shorts, he didn't have a slip on or underpants or jockstrap. <laughs> so halfway down the track, you can guess what happens. He's waving at people. He's waving at people. Yeah. And there's something appears from his shorts that shouldn't appear from his shorts. So he's trying to tuck it back in and then running another 10 yards and trying to tuck it back in. He still finishes third. So he finishes third. <laughs> so, so, but there's only Kevin Beatty would go up there without he, the right gear. Did he come out and say it was the drag? It, when, the, when it hit the track. It hit the drag, yeah. The, the torque and the drag slowly. He, he did actually it. say he was running with an anchor, but there we go. <laughs> but he's, he was such a, he's such a lovable guy. But the, the things that, I, you know, for me, it was... I thought, well, I'm never going to get the team. Alan Hunter was an yes, international. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Beattie, Russell was there, John Pedalty, Dale Roberts, lots of really good players that were there. And I'm like, I can't, I, I, won't, I won't get there. But you, you eventually work your way through. 
But with Kevin and Alan, they had a lot of knee injuries. In those days, cartilage operations, you, you know, you're six you're weeks out. Yeah, yeah, you are done. So I was lucky enough that, in a way, Kevin's misfortune was my good fortune. But I played alongside Beat many times. I played in the semi-final of the, of, the, of the Cup in 81 with him. I was, uh, he was left back, I was centre-half. Sometimes we'd change, sometimes we'd both play centre-halves. He was just an incredible guy. And I see him now for working for the radio, Radio Suffolk, and he's just great. We meet, you know, we meet each other, and it was just brilliant. You know, he's, he's great. You'll never take away the memories that we have. And he was one of the. He scored a goal against Bohemians of Prague in our UEFA Cup run, which we won. It nearly took the roof of the net off. And I remember being a young boy at Ipswich in 70, 77, 76, 77, and I was sweeping the dressing rooms up because I was you know, like just doing the jobs after the game. And John Osborne was the goalkeeper for West Brom. And he's sitting in the dressing room having a cigarette. He's sitting there with his legs crossed. Well, the others have gone out. And I said, is it okay to come in? He said, yeah, come on in, son. So I'm sweeping away. And he's sitting there. He says, you know, son, what do you think of the game? I says, uh, oh, great win for us. And I sort of think he says, yeah. He says, he says what about Beatty's goal from the free kick? And he's, he struck one in from 25 yards that nearly took the net off. He struck it that hard. He says, you know the best thing I ever did today? Sucking away in his fag, and I says, "What was that, John?" He says, uh, "I got out of the way, beat his free kick." He says, "Because if I'd have put my hand to that, he says he would have broken my arm." He said, "So that was the best thing I ever did today." But they just they just lost six one or seven one or whatever it was. Mariner scored as well, but it was it was great because in those days he used to he used to play for the youth team on a Saturday, and then you'd always come back down to the ground to watch the first team play. You play in the morning and watch the first team play because that was part of your education to watch them. So for me, as an Ipswich supporter, it was just utopia. Who's to beat? I, I seem to remember, I, I might be wrong, the, the two-legged final of the UEFA Cup, which is triumphant, it's maybe including the 62 title, it's maybe the best moment in the club's history. I guess it is. Maybe one of the best moments in, in your... It felt that, um, particularly in the second, I mean, there was, was there a bit of tiredness eventually because it became closer than maybe it should have no, been? No, it wasn't tiredness. It certainly wasn't tiredness. I mean, we, we, the preparation was all right. We'd, we'd played a game against Southampton and lost 3-2, a league game in between the, the, the two legs. Um, so, you know, we'd, we'd lost the title. We'd obviously lost the FA Cup early on. Um, and we're 3-0 up playing in Amsterdam Arena. And it's... It's you just want the game to you just want to finish the game off. You don't care because you, you, you got one hand on the trophy. And mm. It's a really strange position to be in because it's not as though it's even Stevens. It's not, but you still don't you don't want the embarrassment of losing a three goal lead. Ipswich had lost a three goal lead against Barcelona before and Cup Cup wherever it was. When Cruyff it went to penalties and Cruyff absolutely took over. That was the one you were talking about. Yeah. So on the day, Altmar played very similar to the Graham Taylor's Watford. They played two at the back. Spell boss in Metgod, Johnny Metgod, remember good, him? Good. Well, played against Aberdeen in the Cup, yeah. cup final. And they, and they had two four four. They went, and we, and, you know, we, we were like, wow, because we, we played against it before with Graham Taylor's Watford, but for them to do like that was quite radical and very brave. What were the challenges in football terms when they played like that against you? Well, it's man for man, and, and you, you, there's no. If you make a mistake, then you know you're under pressure. And by making it man to man, uh, man on man, one on one, it puts. Your opponent under pressure, and they, they on the day they had nothing to lose. Like I five aside, you cannot let your man go by. You stay with your man all the time. Yeah, yeah, and you, that's your job. And yeah. you, as long as you, if you, sometimes in football, very simple instructions like that can make can take away the pressure off you. And you just say, right, I'm going to go wherever I want to go when we haven't got the ball. When you're in possession, you can be out of position, <laughs> <laughs> and things like this. But you have to be back in position. When you're out of possession, <laughs> and that's without a drink. Alvin, quite well. Alvin, are you listening to this? <laughs> I could do quite well. So. We went 1-0 up and you think, well, that's the game over. Because we've got the away yeah. goal, we're 4-0 up. Yeah. And then they score a goal straight away. 
And then we get a second goal, and you think, well, it must be over now. It was like, it was, it was like in a boxing ring where you keep hitting the opponent, and he keeps going down, but he keeps getting back up. Yeah. You're thinking, I'm going to knock him out in a minute, and the referee's going to throw, you know, there's going to be a towel thrown in, but the towel wasn't thrown in. In the end, they won 4-2, and I'm, your mess comes into it then. You're thinking, a bit like Salonika in the, in the first round. Yeah. You're thinking, you know, no, this can't happen. But we, we held on to win, to, to win the tie so overall. Tactics aside of them going man for man and playing this, Formation they weren't quite used to facing, therefore you have to adapt. Much of that was psychology. The, the fact that you have to cope with the idea of what's well, semi one, and they have nothing to lose. Is that what I was seeing when I saw the second leg? That oh, I wondered why why aren't Ipswich putting this this game this team to bed? But it, it was something to do with them just saying, yeah. well, we, we we just can get at them. No? Yeah, and also because Gatesy then couldn't get any space, couldn't get away anywhere, couldn't get you know find the holes that he normally found, especially in the first game. So, because he had a man marker and he would follow him around everywhere. So we, we couldn't get our men on the ball that would win us the games or have won, had won us the games that season. You could also say as well, it's 66 games, it was the end of a, a really, really competitive season. And the semi-final, when we, when we went away to Cologne, it was Easter. So we played Arsenal on the Saturday, we lost at home 2-0. We played Norwich away on the Monday, lost 1-0. Mm-hmm. And then we had on the Wednesday, we flew out after the game to Cologne after the game on Easter Monday. So we then had to play on the Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And then we played the following Saturday. Mm-hmm. So from Saturday to Saturday, there was four games, mm-hmm. which is like unbelievable. Is that one of the great regrets? Because you were a title winning side, but that, that didn't quite well, complete the we, title. Well, we beat Villa three times that season, once in the cup as well, home and away. Um, and we felt we were the better team. But at the end of the day, the, the, the best team wins the title. There's no doubt about that. And we gave away a lot of points. We had a bad running. The, the last dozen games were, by our standards, were very poor, and that's where we lost it. Do you know what happened retrospectively? Uh, you could say tiredness, but I think there's a lot of state pressure. Teams knew us very well. They didn't want to get beaten by us again, and you know we just we just didn't do the business that we that we had done previously. I don't know if I'm talking rubbish, but I remember at the time thinking that Aston Villa maybe had just. Two or three guys of a deeper squad that felt like they were well, able to cope with the You say a deeper squad, I think they only played four, either 14, you either used only 14 or 15 players 15, that I season. Think, yeah. 15 players. And we, we must have used 20 odd because we got Seriously. massive injuries. We got, we, well, that, we got injuries to BT, we got injuries to Beat, we got injuries to Mariner, we yeah. got injuries to key players. George Burley was injured halfway through the season. Maybe as well. I've said it wrong in that, in that I remember that it felt like a combination of injuries and then. The tiredness of playing so many games and being alive in so many competitions, it, it, it has to drain that, that nil-nil becomes one-nil to you or, yeah. or, or well, one-one. We, I mean, we wanted to win something, you know, probably the least, tro- the least sort of impressive trophy that we could have won, we won. You, you, you'd rather win the FA Cup, you'd rather win the league title, obviously, but it was still an incredible feeling. It was an incredible season. I think Adidas voted us the team of the year and all that sort of thing. And, you know, it was just it was just a just a wonderful journey for for us all. It was just incredible. I, I wondered, I was joking on the way down that maybe your love of Scotland began with ACDC, <laughs> given that they are a Scottish rock band, not an Australian. Oh well, yeah, very true. The Youngs count as, as, yeah, yeah, as well. Scots. But um, did you have any qualms at all about coming up to Scotland? And do we remember we had a we were talking about what we remember the first Terry Butcher Rangers memory that any of us had, and. It was Neil who got it in the end. He reckons that your first game might have been against Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich, yeah, lost 2-0 at home, yeah. But you came out 
36,000, yeah. The crowd were kind of calling you out first, or you, you were not paraded, but you came out as the big signing, or what, what was that day like? Well, it was a great day. We lost 2 0 midweek, and then we, we played Hibs on the following Saturday, which, which is another story. But Hardly remember that game. What happened in that? Uh, I can't remember that. <laughs> but I'd gone down the previous week to Spurs, to, to Tottenham, and it was the uh, Paul Miller testimonial game uh, at White Hart Lane. And um, 10,000 Rangers fans at the game. I didn't play, I just signed. So I, there was 10,000 Rangers and it was and they were singing my name and all that. And I'm thinking, wow, this is unbelievable. Well, was it already a different world from Ipswich? I mean, that's uh, a stupid question, but I'd like to know. In a way, but I, I travelled down from Ipswich to, to Spurs and then met up with the boys and that, and then sort of thing, and then went back to Ipswich and then flew up that week. Just meeting Suness was just immense. You know, even now, you see him on TV now, you think, wow, he's got something about him. It's about 100 times more impressive when you actually meet him, and particularly then in 86. It was... It is quite remarkable. It was, there's, what can you say, there's not not many people in in football that you'd meet that you'd actually say, wow. You're allowed to laugh at me, but I said said to the lads as we were going down to, to meet him a couple of months ago for an interview, for this interview, I said to him, you know, he could have played Bond. Do you know what I mean? Oh, easy. He's got that, yeah. that elegant charisma and a certain amount of menace. Oof. And I suppose four men in a room shouldn't be talking about another man like in this way. It's a, it's a bad thing to be doing. But like, he reminds me of Connery. Yeah. And there is, there's an elegance, but there's a ferocity too. Yeah. He's a, and he's a different man in person than he might appear on the pitch. But it's, it's, a, hell of a, it's a hell of a combination. He's got, I don't know what he's got going for him, but it's... He's charismatic. Oh, he's, oh, he's unbelievable. He, when he took me up to Glasgow to talk first before we signed, and then when he's, you know, he showed me Ibrox and he showed me the, the bit of Glasgow and things like this, and he was very good. It was a lovely sunny day, which was quite it worked in his favour because it was not normally in the summer in Scotland. <laughs> but he was, you know, I'm going to sign. I'm going to sign for Graham Sinnett. You know, it's like Chris Woods had already signed, mm-hmm. Colin West Colin, had already signed, yeah. so I was, I was the third one. And um, there was no other, no other club came in for me. It was a fleeting interest from David Pleat at Spurs. But it, was, it just felt right. It really did feel right. But it was, you could sense straight away it was completely different, you know, to Ipswich. Really, I mean, you're talking big time. I mean, it's just immense. It's huge. People don't under, really understand the size of the club and the, even now where the club is. But then it was just immense. It was just immense. But to sign for Sunet, and then you meet David Holmes, who was the chief executive. And he was class as well, really was. And that, that was the thing about Suness and Rangers was class, absolute class. And he felt, well, I'm coming to a really big club here. And it's, it just felt a natural progression, which it was. It's a big club, but it didn't, what it didn't have was a proper training ground. Well, it had the Albion, which was, no. a, which was a car park across the road. That was good, by the way. That, that, that was really good. And that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the phrase. That's the phrase I learned in Scotland, by the way. We say that after every sentence, by the way. But we used to, we used to, go, we used to go and uh, we used to go across to the Albion training ground, walk across. Sometimes we used cherry, to carry the gold. Cherry, cherry, cherry. You have to tell people who haven't experienced the Albion, what the Albion is. Well, the Albion was a corrugated iron fence all the way around the outside. Yeah. And there's this big block of flats. Yeah. Two, I think two blocks of well, the flats were there and it was a rough area. <laughs> no doubt about that, very rough area. So where the, yeah, there was a, a, called a blaze pitch. It was like a, a cinder pitch. Yeah. And then they had a grass pitch and we always trained on that. It was one where it was still a big bit of area away from the grass pitch. So it could probably take nearly three pitches of this Albion car park. Oh, it was now a car park, the Albion training ground. And in a way, it was quite radical for a club to have that. But whenever the ball went, if you kicked the ball and it was some keeper would save it or you'd have a shot and it would go over the bar, you had to run quickly to go and get the ball back. 
because the, the, the kids from their, from their flats <laughs> used to burrow underneath a corrugated fence and steal the balls. And so you had, to, you had to run quick because you could, they were like rabbits. They'd appear out of the, out of the fences. <laughs> and that's, that's probably, why, probably why my speed actually picked up at Rangers because I had to go get the ball back because my shots kept going over the bar. And then uh, after the training session, we all had to carry the goals back across because they would come on and saw them up, saw them up for scrap. <laughs> But we did that. Bayern Munich, Barcelona, eat your heart out. I know, but that was the way it was. They were looking for a training ground and obviously found Murray Park, but they're always looking for somewhere to go. We played at cricket grounds and rugby pitches. Part of it, where they played, they yeah. trained for a while yeah. with the first ever international match was between England and Scotland yeah, yeah. and part at cricket ground. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not quite ready to leave the Albion yet. How were the training games? Decided. Was there any geographical element? Oh, it was. Yeah, it was. It was. There was always on a Friday. We, mm-hmm. we, I mean, sometimes you play young v old. Sometimes in Scottish clubs they play Protestant against Catholic and things yeah, like that, this. Yes. that does happen. Mm-hmm. It still does, I think. But mm-hmm. there we are. Not so much now. But uh, if, when we first went there, it was Scotland against the rest of the world. And then because Graham then introduced over the next couple of years so many English players. It then became England against the rest of the world, and Graham Sinness would always play on the English side. So I think he thought he was English. He'd always play on the English whoa, whoa, side. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, Graham, if you're listening, I want to distance myself from that. That was Terry that said it. That's nothing to do with me. Okay, we can go on now. I think distance is quite good from Graham. <laughs> but it, and then we'd, we'd play, but it was fierce. It was the fiercest thing. It was fiercer than the game the next day on the Saturday. It was unbelievable. But the thing about Graham was because it was, because it was quite good for me, from our point of view, because He'd always play till England won because he wanted to win, <laughs> and, he, and he would he would top you in training as well. Not not us because we were teammates. <laughs> he would, the Scottish players, he would top he would top them as well. He would he wouldn't hold back on tackles things like this, and he could top if he wanted to. You could do so. You you'd pick up little knocks and niggles on a Saturday, but you wouldn't say anything if you were the opposition. But the stick he used to get, we would got massive stick if England lost. The, if England lost, but the thing about it was, what I used to do is when I went away with England, I'd. Pinch one of these wet tops, you know, the cagoules they call them in Scotland. That's a wet top with the England crest on, with the three lines on. And I'd wear it for training all the time. And that, David Cooper used to ride him up. He used to slaughter me. Alan McCoy, Steen Durant, they, 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 they go bananas. I, I get the gentle impression that none of that <laughs> particularly put you off your stride. You quite enjoyed that. No, but I used to write for the Rangers News as well. I had a column in the Rangers News. And Stephen Halliday, who's a great Scottish journalist, he used to, used to, used to sort of ghost it, so we'd, we'd write it. And I used to have a, a, my awards every week, and they were normally based on the Friday training sessions, England versus the rest of the world. It was the MVP, the best player, the worst player, the best goal, the worst miss, and the moaner of the week. So I had a five awards. And I, it, because the Rangers used to come out on a, as a in, you know, intel, but you'd go on sale to the public, it used to come out uh, on a Wednesday, and then the boys would read it on the Thursday. And I used to get, I used to, I had to hide because the boys would give me pelts because I'd, I'd slaughter the players and that sort of thing in the papers and all that sort of thing. And I always put David Cooper as the moan of the week, call him Albert Tatlock, because <laughs> he used to moan like mad. Yeah, and he used to call me Lurch. You rang, he used to say all the time. <laughs> what are you saying? You rang? All that sort of thing. Unbelievable. That banter was the best. And I, my first, one of the first training sessions, I saw David Cooper. I'd heard about him and played against him for, for Scotland and England. And um, I went to David Cooper and I said, David, I says, uh, uh, that's, that's before I'd signed. I did a training, had a training session before I'd signed. And I said, David, if I join Rangers, will we win the league this year? He went, were you on board, big man? No problems. And it's ironic that the goal that won the league for us that year was up at Aberdeen. Thanks for that. Against Jim Layton. Ironic's not the word I would use. Who never moved. 
And I remember looking at David Cooper for the free kick and, and uh, we made eye contact. It's one of the special moments. That's we made eye contact and I just ran. That's perfect. And he, he knew exactly that's where to put it. And he put it right on the button. And I, all I had to do was make contact. And it was, we, we drew the game 1-1. Sooness was sent off ironically again. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, we, but that was a good trip home. That was that, I, I would have, that doesn't make me feel any better. <laughs> but I do, I do admire that because football should produce. It's not too poncy, poetic moments where he, he's promised you with you you'll do it, and he gives you the, yeah. the winning goal. That, that ain't bad. That's not bad. Is what, it? what was um, for those? We, we get listened to, strangely enough, um, around the world, and, and what we found is that our audience really appreciate football played well and will often listen to stories about people who they haven't seen themselves. David's dead. Yeah. David died tragically young and left a legacy of extraordinary football that too few people can still see now because football wasn't as well televised then. What, what did David Cooper have that, that made him such a special footballer? He had uh, fantastic abilities first and foremost. The sweetest left foot you'd ever see. It was unbelievable. He would, but what David used to do, is, if you're under a bit of pressure, you give the ball to David, he'd take the ball out for a walk. You know, he'd take it away for a run, he'd take it to a corner, take two or three people on, and it'd relieve the, the pressure, but also take you up the pitch. But he could deliver a cross and a ball into the box with pinpoint accuracy, free kicks, corners, anything he wanted. But he's, he's, he'd take the mickey out of himself, but he'd moan like mad right now. Mm. But he would, he would take the mickey out of himself, so he had a, a good humility about him as well. But he was a team player. He could go past people as well. I mean, yeah, I remember that he, he, he wasn't had a lightning, balance. He wasn't lightning quick. No, but he was jinky. John Roberts. He was jinky. Look, ah. you know, like the Scottish wingers, you know, very jinky. We John Robertson, for example, yeah. wasn't massively no. quick in a sprint sense in the Kevin Beattie sense. John Robertson is a great You, you uh, couldn't get near player. him. No, he right-footed, played on the left wing, just to come inside. We played a game, Tony Woodcock organised it in Cologne. And uh, that was when I could still play, right at the end of my career, and I was, when I was just finished playing virtually uh, between England and Germany. And there was, there was Bonhoeff for playing for Germany, so I think I went out there, I think Schultz went out there, Russell went out there, Tony Woodcock played, and John Robertson came as, a, as an honorary Englishman. And he, he desert boots, cigarette, he's like, he loved the fag as well. And he played, and, and we lost the game 5 1, whatever. I think we were still drunk for the night before. But we went to a function afterwards where all the German players sat on one side, and we, we sat. And I had, had a meal in a big tent, big marquee, where they'd sold tickets for the fans to be there. And there was a band playing, and uh, they'd play the music and sort of thing. So, so Robert says to me, he says, uh, I've heard you can play the drums. And I said, Well, I can play a little bit, I'm not too bad. But they had a breather. So when Robert got up to the band and said, look, do you mind if we use your instruments? And they said, no problem. And so we got up and we started singing Beatles songs and playing, I don't know, playing You'll Never Walk Alone, which is not good for, to hear for a Rangers captain being involved with that, but there's another story. And the crowd loved it. They're up dancing and singing away, and that's when the boys are up and that sort of thing. They absolutely loved it, that the football. Basically, you and Robert had done that. Or who else could play a lot bit? Oh, I can't remember now, but there was a few other players that you know, have been on the keyboard and guitar and things like this, bass guitar. So the field, the, the it was really good. And, but the German players would, apparently would never ever do that. They would never ever think about doing that. Yeah. But Robert just loved the laugh and the, and the joke. And he was, come on, butchers, let's go. Up we went. And it was great fun, really good. There's something that I've learned over my career in that I remember when it began to be clearer and clearer that on the continent in particular, they were very sparing in the diet, very sparing about alcohol. And I, I was quite pious about it. Um, not in my personal life, but as a journalist, you, you, I wrote about, and, and I've already told you before we started chatting that, you know, I once went to Juventus and studied there and wrote an article and Walter was very annoyed about the comparisons made. But there was, there was something about the drinking culture before it became 
a culture that could be caught on these stupid smartphones or maybe that led to players behaving really badly, really in a way that would embarrass themselves in a club. There was a wildness about British football in the 60s, 70s and 80s, British footballers and their drinking and international teams and their drinking that led to fun and incidents and bonds and, and maybe something in the extra moment in a, in a tight cup final against a foreign team in the European Cup and the Commonwealth Cup where you give a little extra because he's not just a fellow player, he's your mate. There were, although we needed to, to catch up and now it's, it, you can't live like that and keep up with foreign no. teams. There was something about that, that was, that's, that's made our football culture richer, wasn't there? Certainly with the teams, you know, the, the teams were very much teams, not a, not a team of individuals and, and the drink and the sessions. I mean, some of the players I play with, Ian Ferguson, for example, up in Rangers, didn't drink, but came out with us. But he just wanted to be with the lads. And I think Kenny Sansom didn't drink initially. It doesn't matter if you're drunk or not, just being with the lads and being together was the best thing ever. You, you get footballers now, old, older footballers like me and things like this, and you don't talk about games you've played, you talk about hmm. drinking sessions you've had, like after, you know, world, during World Cups and uh, digging escape tunnels to get out and things like this. You, you talk about the, the fun that you had. They obviously won't be able to do that with, with, with this generation now because they don't necessarily have the, the fun. They probably talk about the cars they've bought or the houses they've bought or, or, or this and all that, So, which is a different thing. But we had great times. We worked hard. We worked really, really hard. But we also played hard as well. Mm. And I think when you get a group of people together, like professionals like we were, you know, and, and, you, and you have a few drinks and you tell a few stories and you have a laugh and a joke, it makes you much closer because... If you're playing 66 games a season like we, we did in that 1980-81 season, mm-hmm. you have to be close as a team to have the success that, you, that we did. If you weren't close, you wouldn't have pushed, that, you pushed yourself to the limits of trying to win games and playing. You know, sometimes we play games on the Boxing Day, the 26th, and you play on the 27th, you know, the, the next day. Mm-hmm. You play two games in two days, which you wouldn't do now. You wouldn't even think about doing no. it these days. You'd be humiliated if you were proposing that. But you also, from a, from a fitness point of view, there was never a problem. And I think sometimes with the drink as well, it helps you get over injuries a little bit better. Mm. So I'm not recommending it, of course, but well, it, 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 it helps you. It stunned me that a lot of, a lot of clubs would give a players a little top of brandy or whiskey going out before yeah, the game was, at half-time. That was all part of the physio's kit. Medical kit was a bottle of brandy and a bottle of whiskey. And you'd have that. I never, I never wanted that because that was... I just couldn't imagine that going on the pitch like that. Although I'd played junior football... I've been lowest off, and our top striker used to have a half a bottle of vodka before he went out and scored a hat trick, and he never saw him second half because he was back in the bar. So, but in a cold day in Scotland, I mean, you know, I know Gaza did it. I'm not secret. I got a little tot of brandy at half time to go out on a cold day, and some players, I suppose, just it became a habit. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I mean, you played so many games, and you played so many games uh, with injuries, little knocks and niggles, and you just you just hoped. That they wouldn't get worse in the games. You know, you hope that you know, I've got a like, like I played against Poland in '86 with England. And I had a medial ligament strain inside of my knee, and it was really bad. I knew it was bad, but I never told anybody how bad it was because I wanted to play for England in the World Cup, and I and I did, I did and got through it. And eventually, we went you know up to the quarterfinals. So, you know, you, you, but there are, you know nowadays you probably wouldn't say that. You know, you don't, nowadays you'd say something. And actually, as a manager, you encourage players to tell you if they're injured or not. Because so they don't play when they shouldn't and let the team down. Yeah, that's right. And I think you've got to be fair to players as well with injuries. You know, if you tell us that you're injured, then it's up to the physios to make the decision, not the players. Because if you ask a player to play... He's going to play. He's going to play. Of course he is. Especially even now, nowadays, today, they're going to play. So you really have to make it, nowadays, the medical team are the ones... That, if you've got a good physio, a good doctor, it's your call. And if they say, 
it's 50-50, then sometimes comes back to you. But I would always go with a physio and I would say, no, he's not playing because of that. Whereas he never had that in those days. In the, in the, in the days gone by, he never had that sort of not so much trust in your physio, but you never you, you left it with a player. A manager would always leave it with a player because you knew the player was going to play. And if there was a small squad, then the player played. We've used up an, an awful lot of your time and it's been as wonderfully engaging and fun as I expected it to be. But before we finish, I want to know a little bit more about the characters you met at Rangers in your time when you were winning trophies and when it was a new country to you and, and a new kind of culture, I suppose, from, from Ipswich. What, what was it like being in a dressing room or playing with and winning with Duran and, and McCoyst and with Walter Smith as soon as his assistant. What, what was the experience like? Oh, it was it was phenomenal experience. I mean, um, the number of uh, supporters clubs that Rangers has in Scotland and throughout the world is phenomenal. And we had to say, uh, getting towards the end of the season and they'd vote for the players of the year. You'd be playing on a Saturday and you'd be going out to supporters clubs in the evening on a Saturday. But you, I would do two or th- probably three supporters clubs. Go to one, have a meal at one, go to another one, and then go to another one. And the number, in those days, they didn't have the phones and, and, and they had cameras, but with the flash bulbs. Yeah. And it, your eyes were standing out on stilts <laughs> at the end of the night and these are this. But you went out to them, and therefore you had an affinity with the fans by mm-hmm. doing that. All the supporters clubs would come to you at one o'clock before a three o'clock kickoff. Mm-hmm. You'd have your pre-match meal, you won't get the team talk till quarter to one, and you'd get your award then at one o'clock. So you'd meet two or three supporters clubs then. So you're always meeting people, and you always felt part of the people as well. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, that, that isn't the case. But you, there was such a responsibility when you played for Rangers as well that you wanted to give the fans as much success as you possibly could. But being with some of the players in, in, the, in the team was just phenomenal. You used to, when things weren't going well, you'd, you'd know that Alan McCoyce would pop up with a goal. Yeah. He'd miss hit the shot and it would fly him off a defender's backside and go in, but he would always do it. You know, he'd, he'd always come up with well, up, up trumps. David Cooper was be the same. Robert Flack we used to play up front with us and things like this. But you know, you look at so many characters in the team: Jimmy Nicol at right back, Graham Roberts, Richard Goff, uh, Woodsy in goal. You know, we had some great experiences. We, you know, we went away to to Israel and we, uh, quite a few times with Rangers post season. We went away to little places, but sometimes go away to to Glen Eagle. Sometimes go away to the old course hotel in St Andrews, they'd take us away for a, for a few nights and it was great fun just being with them. And it, you really do miss those days because they were happy, happy days. You know, sometimes you, you had to get used to playing for a big club because of the responsibility and the pressure that was on you. But it was a real pleasure to play for that, for that football club. And I remember leaving the football club in 1990 to go to Coventry to become player manager. And Willie Waddle was the last person to say, anything to me as I left and he, he just Willie Waddle's an absolute yeah. legend at Ibrox uh, ex-manager fantastic fantastic guy who's no, no longer with us he just shook my hand and just thanked me very much for what I've given to Rangers Football Club and I thought hang on he's telling me thanks very much for what I've given I should be thanking him as well for what he gave to Rangers Football Club in the past because you know an absolute legend there so it was, that was a really nice touch when I, when I left. And leaving Rangers was, was heartbreaking, really. But obviously there was a fresh challenge for me uh, at Coventry. It, it was at Coventry, but it, I think it was very nearly you instead of Steve Bruce at Old Trafford. Well, yeah, but I was, I was tapped up for three years at Ipswich for Old Trafford. And Brian Robson used to speak to me at England uh, get-together. And actually, after the quarter-final hand of God game, and I thank you very much for not mentioning Maradona at all doing this thing. Ron Atkinson, who was the manager, mentioned that was in the hotel with Brian Robson, and we were talking about a possible move or what you want to do and all that sort of thing. And I nearly had a place picked to live, and nearly had a school for my kids and all that sort of thing. But such was the three-year interest, it, it never happened. But there you are. That's football.
But Alex Ferguson was as interested, if I believe, until you broke. I think so, but you broke your leg. I think you. so, but uh, yeah, but it was um, it was great to meet Alex as he was there, not so Alex, because he was you know a fantastic, fantastic manager. But to beat Aberdeen from a Rangers point of view was immense, and the same yeah. from Aberdeen point of view. To be yeah. there, we seem to be more animosity and hatred no, no between Aberdeen and, and Rangers than Celtic and Rangers. But, that, but that's what you're up against. And in, in those days, you could Rangers could lose to any team in the, in the league. Celtic could as well. Any team could beat each other. That was that was the, the competition, and that was the nature of the beast. The, the way to finish, I want to finish, is that um, in your playing time, and subsequently, as I said, when when I got to know you a little bit in Casablanca, which was Glen Hoddle's yeah. training base from La, or training games from La Manga, before going to the World Cup in in, in '98. You know, England has meant a lot to you, but you've, you've played with and watched legions of exceptional international footballers with England, and you've taken them as close if, okay, Mexico would be up there too, to the 1966 moment with Bobby Moore, because I would contend that if you beat Germany in the semi-final, we, we you're gonna won. beat Argentina. Yeah. It was a very poor, niggly, unfit, but they, horrible they Argentina had a lot of men suspended and a lot of injuries as well. It, it, the final was very we, winnable. We knew our, because Argentina had put out Italy the host the night before that we played, so we knew that we ever won, and Germany knew as well. It was the final, yeah. effectively. That game was the best, I think, the, probably the, one of the best games England had played in that, in that game, uh, in the semi-final. Yeah. You know, I, I even had a back heel, which came off. I couldn't believe it. I should have retired then. <laughs> Well, in fact, I did. <laughs> but you were playing a five-man. I mean, yeah. I, I, that made a big difference, did it? The change to bring yeah. Mark right. Yeah. Technically, in football terms, yeah, it was good. What it, happened? It was good. But Bobby and Don Don Howe, I always thought about doing this. We never did, did it a lot in games prior to the World Cup, but he talked about it. We worked at it. In fact, some of the games and training matches we played with the three at the back, and with, obviously with the five with the wing backs, we were awful. We were poor. Yet he still went with it. And it, once again, like with Bobby's teams. The players knew the jobs, knew what they had to do, and they made it work. The three being you, Des Walker. I was on the left. Mark Wright. Mark Wright was a sweeper. Yep. Des Walker was the other marker. Paul Parker right back. Paul Parker right back. Stuart Pearce left wing left. I mean, we had some phenomenal characters in that team and captains of teams as well. You know, at that time, you know, Lineker and Beardsley, Ed Waddle, you know, mostly Gazza and David Platt, things like this. And they, you came through. They didn't start the competition, Gazza and Platty, but they came into it. And then by the end of the tournament, were first team regulars. So it was a fantastic World Cup for them. But we had some great characters and some great, and I say, leaders in that team that were strong. We lost John Barnes, we lost, we lost Brian Robson, yet still managed to cope and get to the semi-final. What is missing? Because over the years, I go back to 98 again, undoubtedly your semi-final performance was, was better. But the performance, I think in Longs, against Argentina was also very, very good. That's a good Argentina side. Shouldn't have lost that on penalties. Something goes wrong, oh, as that's always. Sanetienne, Sanetienne. sorry, yeah. that's right, yeah. Simeone should have been sent off because he's come through the back of Beckham. Yeah. But somehow or other, it goes against England yet again. And there's always something, whether it's a red card or yeah. a penalty or the ball, the ball crosses the line, the referee doesn't give it. And over the years, I've seen groups of really talented footballers just not have something, whether it's luck or whether it's fitness or whether it's strategy or whether it's keep the ball or um, what, yeah. what, what's missing? A little bit is missing as well. I think is the mentality is that we've we become we have become now especially serial losers. We have become to quote Mourinho more than anything else. 
I don't mean that disrespectfully. I just think it's a mentality now that we're on the back foot, not the front foot. We expect to get beaten on penalties. We, we expect to get knocked out in quarterfinals. And we expect this. I think we've, now we've got to be more, far more positive. What England's lacking more than anything else, the characters, is one outstanding player that can take us through. You know, like, like I know Wales have Gareth Bale. They're not going to get to the final of the Euros. I hope they do, but they probably won't. There's one outstanding player that we need. Mm-hmm. You know, like you think of England's 66 World Cup, you know, Jeff Hurst scored in the final, but Bobby Charlton got us all the way through. Yeah. One outstanding player. Maradona's won the World Cup for, for Argentina. You know, you look at some of the, some of the players. Zidane's uh, World Cup Zidane, final. Zidane, for, yeah, Zidane. You know, you, you can go through World Cups, you'd say, that, that player, that player, that player. We haven't had that. We haven't got that. I know Rooney's with, with us now, and I would never write Rooney off. I think he's got a big game mentality now. And he knows his time's coming short, or he'll finish soon. So he wants to make that, that final impact. But we haven't got a, a real player that can take games with a scruff of the neck and, and can say, right, boom, you know, I'm here now. This is my time. Bang, bang, bang. We haven't got that. We've got a good, a good team now. England's got a good team. But it needs more, if, or someone better. That's going to you know, really, with, with that bit of not much world class, but someone with that extra little bit of talent that can that can take us through. We haven't got that. This has been exceptional. <laughs> it's a good reflection. Just tell the tell the listeners, wake up now. Now's your time. Uh, no, no, I don't. Want, I don't want to throw in the swimming pool and Mr. Dave by, by, by an inch. So we've nearly killed Bobby Robson. Yeah. We've uh, Beach has almost fallen to his um, a yeah. grisly end. Yeah. What it feels like to me, Terry, honestly, is, I hope anyway, a good reflection of a brilliant footballing life, a life that's been led with a lot of colour and passion and a sense of fun. And I hope that what we've talked about is also, apart from your achievement side and your leadership side, the things that were obvious to people who watched, is your talent and ability and the, and the great teams that you played in in England and in Scotland too. And I want to finish just by saying that this is what the big interview is about, talking to great football men have a great football life, so it's it's been well. I think an well, honor. thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. But I think what we have to say is that luck plays a big part as well in getting the opportunity and getting the chance because there's so many players that don't make it. But when you do get that opportunity and that chance, you've got to take it. But you've also got to enjoy it. Yeah. You know, nice. My best present I ever had as a boy at Christmas was a leather football. And that's how old I am. A leather football. But any kind of football nowadays. That's the best present you can give a boy these days, and a girl as well. Because I used to sleep with that football. Mm. I'd take it everywhere, dribble it, play one-twos against the walls, and things like this, and, and keep it. Playgrounds, that's my ball, my game, my team, all that sort of thing. I, 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 one of the best things you can ever give a young boy now, or young girl, is a football. Because, and just say, there we are. Because for me, that's, that's what the game's all about. Keeping that ball, having that ball, yeah. and playing a game. And you walk past school playing fields now on the weekends, or public parks, those that remain, and you don't see what you saw in our day when oh, you, you couldn't wait to get the ball and get out after school all night yeah. in the rain, weekends, it didn't matter. Yeah. Everybody was always playing, and that's, that's changed a lot. You know, is it, remember the little string bag you used to have, you used to put the ball in the string bag, and you used to carry that sometimes. If you're lucky to have a string bag, I never had one, but you didn't carry it under your arm, or you, or you, or you just, wet, you just When dribble. the leather ball got wet, and oh, you yeah. went ahead it, or whatever, it was... Yeah. Well, yeah, that was that the was the smell problem. of that leather football. The smell, the smell stays with me to this and day. You talk about music, but the smell, the smell of going into a, a football club ah, yeah. and going into a tra- into a dressing room of a football club is the most brilliant smell ever. And because I've got a big nose, so I can smell things <laughs> quite some distance. But the but the music as well. The music plays a big part in associating with memories. Yeah. But smell does as well. Liniment. You think that used to get me nervous when I smell liniment is wintergreen and wintergreen is liniment. Yeah. That always used to. I always used to make me nervous. 
I don't know if that was adrenaline, yeah. but whenever, even when I was playing in my amateur games where I knew things were going to go well because there were better players around me or whatever, to this day, if I smell it, it'll still make me nervous. Yes. Well, I never got that close to the limit to smell it. You, you, yeah. that's, another, that's another issue, but I, I just the smell in the dressing room, the soap, um, the spray, the, the cleaning fluids, wherever it is, that, that smell. When I first walked into Portman Road, 1976, and that smell was just... Phenomenal. I never, never forget that smell. You, it's you, just the most amazing thing ever. You, you've echoed something, I guess you've not listened to big interviews yet, but when I asked Darren Fletcher about what his first memories of football were, because at Pataudry in the 60s, my, mine were, you know, it was then it was, a, oil hadn't really taken over. It was a very much a farming community. And my dad's seat, he'd been going there since the early 50s and Buff Hardy, his, his great friend had been going there, I think since the, the 40s. All around me, there were farmer types. Who spoke in real, you know, Aberdeen, Northeast Doric, and I, I couldn't initially understand them. But the, what they all had pipe tobacco, and it was the sweet. Yeah. I smoked the pipe. It was a sweet kind of. I don't know what it was called, but they packed it in, and as they lit it, the smell will always be associated with me of seeing Aberdeen, with with you know John Craig and Joe Smith and the, the reserves playing in Chelsea All Blue. And Darren immediately said that for him it was. I don't, I don't know what he said. I think he said things like the hamburger stands yeah, and the noise of the generator. Hot dogs and onions, or hamburgers and onions. You always associate that football ground and chewing gum. Chewing gum? Chewing gum, yeah. The smell of chewing gum, the smell and the taste of chewing gum. They're always football. And always when football. See, when you see a milk crate now, does it remind you? I mean, I love the idea of standing <laughs> behind the goal and... Who sees a milk crate now, by the way? <laughs> I don't know where you live. Who Barcelona. Barcelona. Oh, yeah. thanks, for, thanks for reading. <laughs> Mr. Terry Butcher. An honorary Scotsman. Yeah, Thank all the fame. Thank you all very the much fame. indeed. Terry strode off at the end of our interview, Gary Cooper-esque. It wasn't high noon, but it was high afternoon. High jinks, high times, great stories. Into the darkening winter afternoon of Ipswich, a place that he loves, a place where he made great, a place where he's now able to go and have his season ticket and use it at Portman Road and watch what's happening at the club that he still loves. In my opinion, we heard a modern great footballer speaking about a career which was far, far too short, really taking a grip of him from about 1978 and finished through the extraordinary knee pain that having no cartilage leaves you with by about 1991. During that time, he was involved in controversy. He was involved in trophies. He became is a word I used in the introduction, iconic. Um, to Martin, Neil and I, he's a good friend, a man of substance, a man of colour, and a man who lived a football life the way in which if I'd been given enough talent, I would have lived it too. We'll be back soon, just like at the end of every Bond film. The big interview will be back soon with another great guest. Thanks to you. Now that kickstarter.com is finished, all I'd say to you is go to grahamhunter.tv and sign up to our mailing list Follow us at, at GH Podcast on Twitter, and we'll keep you up to date with our latest blogs, with our newest guests, with the photos that result from our recording sessions, and we'll try to thank you and pay you back for the faith you showed us by supporting the big interview on kickstarter.com. 
Thank you, as always, to Beer Jacket for their wonderful music. It's coming nearer and nearer to Christmas. Find a way to gift people uh, Beer Jacket's lovely catalogue of music. Alex Aidy will be having a special Christmas hamper from us when the time comes because she has been a fundamental element in allowing you to hear these interviews. To Martin Gregg, to Neil White, a.k.a. Backpage, thank you for the idea, um, for the cleverness, for the fun, and for the pre-laughs we have before the laughs of the big interview. All of you, our fans, our audience, whatever you are, lovers of football, thanks for being there. The guests are the most important people because without them, there'd be nothing for us to do. But without you, we'd simply be talking to ourselves, which, by the way, I'm usually quite happy doing. See you next time.